0: This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. I'm going to just start by, you know, I, I started my career as an urban designer. My, my title was, in fact, Urban Designer 2, the City of Pittsburgh Planning Department in 1983. And at, at that point, I, you know, I thought the ideal... You know, my impression of what the ideal city should look like was Paris. And I thought, I like, you know, Paris is a wonderful city, and I don't think anybody would argue that Paris isn't a fabulous city, but I thought the reason I liked Paris was because of, of its consistency of architecture, the buildings being the same height, you know, the same material, materials, the same color, the, the great, you know, kind of boulevards, the great streets. But as I've gone to Paris, and as i visited um, other cities uh, of that era, and i I lived in Rome for a short time in the 90s. I realized that that that, that the life of, and and what makes Paris great, um, is not necessarily the fact that the, the the you know the sort of consistency of architecture and height and building mass, but it's what's happening on the street. And and frankly, a little bit of the messiness on the street, right? And you know, Paris, you know, talk about walking cities, right? Paris is one of those cities, and if you've all been there, you, you know that Paris is one of those cities where you can walk for hours and hours and hours and never really get tired of it, right? And in many ways, that's sort of what I've always thought would be my ideal city, a place where you can just walk from one end to the other and never realize you just walk seven miles um, through the city. Um, but I, and also, as in the last few years of my career, and I, I've, I've also been thinking the, you know, about the fact that yeah, Paris is beautiful, it's stunning, but no American city is ever going to be that. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean we have to we are our own places. And we've grown differently. And our, the forms of our city have grown differently. Our you know, the fact that we have these very centralized, high-rise downtowns is very different from the environment in Paris. And that's not a bad thing. So how do we how do we create and how do we build a peculiarly American urban design quality that is in fact the type has the same Characteristics we want the same public policy approach the same walkability the same accessibility that we're all looking for, um, and to me the the real key to that is there's not a, there's not good language for this but is sort of the interconnectedness of places and buildings and streets and open spaces right the relationships not just within not just about and I'm not talking about the sort of prototypical way we approach building buildings that are, you know, similar massing, similar height, relationships. I'm, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, throw that out the window. I'm, I'm tired of this sort of architectural contextualism. I don't think it works, and I think we, we need to get beyond it. I, I'm talking about the kind of the, the relationship between a building and the street, and I'm talking about the, the actual formal, not formal is the wrong word, the actual um, proportions and re, and relationships of buildings and spaces between uh, buildings and between open spaces and um, and streets and so on, that kind of interconnectedness of our city. I, I used to think when I would walk the streets of Rome, I used to think of it as a city that was actually one gargantuan building, that it had been built over time. And in Rome, as you may know, you can actually see layers of buildings from different eras. But it all, it, it all flows as if it was one building that was built over 2,000 years. And I and I, there's, a, there's a value to thinking about a city as one organism in that way that works because of the connections and the interrelationships between the architecture and the land uses and the street environment. So um, given all that, um, I, I would just offer kind of five thoughts about this stuff and five lessons that I've learned. And frankly, have, uh, being here and, and taking the tour yesterday actually has helped me a little bit, think about this stuff in, in a somewhat different ways. Um, number one, and, and so I started my career basically doing design review and urban design. So I think about how cities regulate, quote-unquote, design and how we do design review. My, the first lesson I've learned quite a while ago is that design review, design regulation, the best zoning ordinance in the world is not going to give you great architecture. At best, what you get out of a public design review process and regulatory process is you get, number one, you, get, you can prevent the really bad stuff from happening. And there's some bad stuff out there, and we all know about that. Um, and at its best, you get a great public environment related to new development, right? And by that, I mean not just the street or parks, but the relationship of the building to the street and all that. that at its best, is what a public regulatory and design review process is going to give you. It's not going to give you great architecture. Um, And just as a a couple of side notes, I was in director of the Seattle Design Commission when when Rem Koolhaas designed the Seattle Public Library, which is a fairly dramatic, unusual building. And and Frank Gehry designed the Experience Music Project, which is also a fairly unusual building. And Frank Gehry's building, the one of, the re, one of the requirements that was not being met is transparency at street level. So the staff made, them, made him insisted that he put in these some windows at street level. Well, it looks absurd. <laughs> I mean, and what, what, the, what the regulatory process didn't recognize is that the very character of that building actually lent itself to a more public, more sensuous environment that no amount of windows would, 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 would accomplish. And in fact, it sort of made it the windows look silly and superfluous and, and not an interesting part of the architecture. So um, there, the regulatory process only goes so far, and I would just urge you to keep that in mind, especially as we are dealing with the community and about advocating for design. Um, you, know, you don't advocate for a for design review because you're going to get great architecture. You're, you advocate for it because you're going to address the public environment. The second thing I would, I would argue, and, and, and is the point I made earlier, is that urban design is really an integral part of public policy. And, um, and, I, when I, and, and a quick example of that, and I'm already probably running beyond my time, so let me know. Um, I worked for many years, uh, the last several years of my career, worked very intensively in the Mission District in San Francisco, which is the heart of the Latino community, but it also happens to be the heart of what we in San Francisco call the land-use wars, where there's intense opposition to new development, pushback on gentrification, on displacement. Um, and as I got to know the, the community and the activists in that neighborhood, of course, the first, their first response to new development was, go away, we don't want you. But their second response is, if you have to build your new buildings in our neighborhood, stop making them look so damn different from what's here now. Because what you're doing by designing these all-glass, monolithic buildings is, is giving us a physical expression of how different and how these newer, richer, wider folks are moving into our neighborhoods. And so get your architects and developers to build buildings that, are, that have a little more sensitivity to the surrounding environment and to the nature of the Mission District as it exists today. That was a very interesting lesson for me, and I've taken that lesson um, uh, quite some time. And we actually made some pretty substantial design changes to buildings as a result of that direction from the neighborhood. The third, I think, as I mentioned, is that the key to, I think, a good public design is this interconnectivity um, between buildings, buildings and open spaces, buildings to street. I think you all know this. I think, it's, I think it's, um, it, it's not rocket science to say that. It is sometimes very challenging to do that. And, and, I, and it leads to my fourth point, which is where we have not, as American cities, learned our lesson on this issue of interconnectedness and accessibility is in greenfield development. We've learned it pretty well on infill development. You know, you've got great examples here. I mean, there's some great stuff going on downtown in Little Italy that we saw yesterday that really has a wonderful relationship to the street. The buildings are active. But we all struggle with greenfield development, right? How to make that not only feel connected to the neighborhood and the city around it, but even within the elements of these large greenfield sites themselves, I don't think we, as American cities, in very few places, are doing this well. Of making it feel like a new neighborhood, it feels like a development, right? And and how do you create? How do you take that step away from being a a development that has all the economic constraints that it has into the feeling of an organic neighborhood that we all want and, and look for? That is, I think, a bigger challenge at this point in our cities than infill development. Um, and th- my fifth point is that the responsibility for doing that, for uh, facilitating these interrelationships, these interconnectedness, this relationship between buildings and spaces, is primarily that of the public sector. A developer isn't going to do it on its own, and, and you know, and, and we can have input from neighborhoods and from communities. They're not going to be the ones responsible for this. The public sector, planning agencies, and our re- and our sister agencies. Have to be the one in my in my experience to actually force those issues to happen. Um, and, and as just one minor example to wrap up, um, when we when I, there are three major former military bases in San Francisco that have been the subject of redevelopment uh, plans that have been approved now more than a decade ago, um, and the one that I would um, that I would have showed a slide of if I had thought ahead to mount my slideshow is um, Treasure Island, which is an unusual project. It's on an island in the middle of the bay. But it's an island of about, th- I think, 300 acres that will accommodate 7,000 units of housing on one third of the land area of that 700 acres. So all that the entire 7,000 units is going to be built in such a way that it's all within walking distance of the rest of the development, and within walking distance of a ferry terminal that will connect into downtown. The other 200 acres will become regional open space. Um, That was a conscious decision on the part of the city and, frankly, the fairly enlightened developer to say, we want to create a real place here. We want to create a neighborhood here. We want to create a walkable place here that is, in fact, even though it's in the middle of the bay, outside of any normal transit routes, we want to create a place that is transit accessible. And, 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 And that also, by the way... We'll have about a quarter of the housing units will be um, affordable housing. So I will wrap there. Um, Those are my five ideas. I Thank you for bearing with me my lack of visuals. Peter will make up for that um, um, in, uh, in his presentation. Thank you.
1: What is good design, right? There are a lot of different ideas about what makes good design, and we have different philosophies. Me said, less is more. Robert Venturi said, less is a bore. Sometimes less is just less, right? Um, And our tour yesterday, I think we saw expressions of these ideas uh, throughout your city, as has been visited in many cities. I go back to Vitruvius, right? Fermitas, utilitas, venustas, right? Strength, utility, beauty. To me, these are three core things that any great design is about, right? Firmness, commodity, and delight. And when buildings are so beautiful, right? Because as, as um, Harry was talking about, beauty is important, function is important. When things are so beautiful and they're made so well, their utility can be something. John was talking about Rome, right? When you go to Rome and you walk into an expensive shoe store or something like that, it used to be with the animals were kept, right? Same building. This utility is the most sustainable way to think about making buildings and what their next life can be, right? So I like Vitruvius. And in terms of urban design, I think about, I'll, I'll share two things that support what I think is, how do we strengthen our urban design literacy? I don't know if in the design lab you have a linguistics component, right? But think about, how do we change the language about how we talk about design, especially from a public sector side? So I think about it in terms of two things. We need to promote a culture of design, promote. And this event, and what you guys are doing here and the conversations I've heard, that's already happening here. But how do you make that even a broader conversation across the community? And I think we also need to think about, how do we improve our design language? right? So promote a culture of design, because I don't think you can legislate good taste. Um, and improving our design language in terms of our development codes, so that zoning is not so much of a secret code, that you know you have to be a, an attorney and an expert to talk about. It should be accessible. It's like speed limits, right? That's the law. Imagine right, if the expression of the speed limit was pi. You know, it's 3.14 or something. Like, I mean, why would you make it a secret? It should be clear. It's the law, right? And what do we mean by public improvement? We'll get to that. Okay. So promoting a culture of design. 25 years ago in Milwaukee, we started the Mayor's Design Awards, right? And I'm proud that they still do it, right? Um, also makes me feel a little old. But... Um, it was about promoting a discussion about design. It was not a, it's not an award for architects or landscape architects or designers, right? Professionals have plenty of ways to recognize themselves, right? But that's an inside baseball conversation. This was about recognizing the client, the owner. And a lot of times, it was a small business, a mom and pop. You know, all they did is they took out all the concrete block in the storefront, and they restored the storefront. They thought it was a good business decision, Right? And we awarded them, we invited them. It was something we did with the School of Architecture. So it's the city and the School of Architecture and Planning in partnership. And you know, a business owner comes to the School of Architecture, meets the dean of the School of Architecture, gets their picture taken with the mayor, gets their certificate that they frame and put next to their first dollar that they frame for their business. And it's a conversation about how do we raise and elevate the conversation in the community, and recognize the people who would pay for or hire an artist or do things—the thousands of small things that can happen in the neighborhood to make a city better. Right? Uh, when I first did this, the architects were really mad because I didn't invite the architects. I said, "Well, you know, if your client invited you, if they didn't invite you, maybe they're telling you something." But, you know, anyway. Um, better codes. So. Uh, we had a plan, Blueprint in Denver, we still do, an integrated land use and transportation plan. And the key idea in this was, we're going to grow, accept it, right? We're going to change, accept it. But let's identify areas of change where we want to prioritize growth and change, and areas of stability. Not that the areas of stability aren't going to change, right? But the significant evolution would be along corridors, greenfield sites, brownfield sites downtown. 19 years later, we The plan worked, right? In terms of areas of change, which comprised 18% of the whole land area, 67% of new housing went to areas of change, 64% of new jobs went to areas of change, Um, uh, along corridors in downtown in what we call the kind of the big three downtown, um, and uh, areas like the former Stapleton Airport redevelopment, some greenfield sites, uh, the redevelopment of Lowry Air Base. But part of what facilitated this was an implementation tool of updating the zoning code, right? I mentioned it earlier. Um, And the code is context-based and form-based, right? And so when we talked about it and we went out to the community, we made this little video, we talked about different neighbors have different contexts, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all. And that was a problem with the old code and many city codes, as if, you know, there's one way that single-family looks, right, or one way that commercial areas look. But in fact, there are different patterns from suburban to urban blocks, how buildings sit on the site, right? Um, And transportation and the means of transportation varies across the city that's been built over 100 years in different eras of development, especially, obviously, land use. So the focus on this code was context-based, and it allowed us to organize the conversations and the controversies uh, by different contexts in different areas in the city. Uh, we ended up identifying these six contexts, suburban, urban edge, and urban, primarily residential, primarily single-unit residential, uh, general urban, primarily residential, but primarily multi-unit residential, and then urban centers in downtown, totally mixed. Um, But they're all very different. And so the way we calibrated, the way we identified the building types and the forms and the form standards varied based on where you were. Now, most codes in the U.S. are organized around use, right? And with some nod to form. And so when we talk about form-based codes, we're talking about changing the balance. Certainly, we control use, but the focus is on form and the relationship of, as John was talking about, the buildings to each other and buildings to the definition of the public realm. And so it's really changing from a high emphasis on a lot of words and a lot of legal ease to simple diagrams to explain the fundamental dimensional standards of buildings. Uh, the Main Street Zoning that I mentioned earlier, right, that's what was on the site, the liquor stores up back, a big sign um, that they read the site under Main Street Zoning. Um, it looks like that, right? Um, and pretty simple changes rather than having to rely on a big pylon sign, they made a really creative artistic sculptural sign of a big champagne bottle uh, hanging on the side of the building, right? And so the form-based code does very simple things in terms of adjusting the height of a building as it meets lower-scale zone districts if those adjacencies occur between the main street zone and maybe a lower-scale residential zone, right? Um, And allows a variety of building types along main streets, Um, But if they're more residential, they have a little bit more setback so that the transition from public to private and sort of discomfort of having a living room right next to the sidewalk uh, doesn't happen. But if you're doing a commercial or a mixed-use building, it comes right up to the street. There are 18 zone districts, and the calibrations are 18 zones on the right side. um, But we use very simple diagrams, organizing the height, the site, and various design elements, simple, not Architectural style, but basic elements of buildings, um, and present them in very simple page layouts. So, this is about clarity and flexibility, right? It's about allowing a range of styles, allowing a range of building uh, design to fit within the basic envelope. So, it's not about locking in architectural style or limiting creativity. In fact, it's about allowing for future reinvestment. To accommodate market demands, especially in case of missing middle housing, and allowing more gentle densities in single-family areas, uh, and to facilitate change that's compatible with existing forms. And so, form-based codes and this idea of missing middle actually, to me, is an urban design concern as much as it's about housing. Because, you know, coming into a residential neighborhood meeting in the evening and say, "Hey, welcome. I'm from the city. I'm from government. I'm here to help." Uh, and let's talk about increasing the density in the neighborhood because that's going to be good for you. <laughs> it rarely goes well. I don't know why, right? But when we can talk about right the form of the buildings and point out that oh yeah, these that duplex is really kind of nice, you know, the house scale of the way this courtyard multiplex presents two house scale buildings, right? When you look down the street, it just looks like the scale of the space between a house to a house to a house. But it's actually eight units, right, in a single-family neighborhood, and not a problem. So why can't we continue to do that? Why can't we do more of that? As, house, as I mentioned earlier, the houses have gotten much bigger, and in the next generation of owners, are we going to really need all of that space? So last night at dinner, we were talking about California as a beacon, uh, and, and I'm quite jealous of a lot of things that happen in California. Um, but I think the move from uh, in SB 35 to move you to objective design centers for multifamily housing is really important, and it really is the bread and butter of what form-based approaches have always been about: of clear, objective standards to provide fair and equitable and accessible information about what development is required to do. Um, okay, my last point is real quick. Public improvement. <laughs> this is a cartoon Ian Lockwood, uh, uh, who was a little fellow with me, drew, and I, and I love this, right? Public improvement, right? right? Do, do you think the folks thought that their experience in their neighborhood on their porch was improved when the McGrath Highway was built right in their front, right? That's not a public improvement, right? Um, these kids, this is how they would walk. This is I-70 in Denver, uh, in a neighborhood, highest rates of childhood um, asthma. This is how they walk to school, right? This doesn't make sense. Limited access highways in cities do not make sense. So. In terms of public improvement, I look at it this way. We should focus on fine-grained streets versus limited-access road. Limited-access highway across the plains makes sense. okay? But limited-access design in a city is totally contrary to what cities have been about since the beginning of time. Cities are about access and exchange. Economic exchange, social exchange, cultural exchange. Limited access public realm doesn't give you that, right? The second thing is privilege the short trip. I mentioned, you know, a feature of a great city is its walkability. If we design the city, if we design streets not based on how many cars do we have the responsibility to accommodate in the future, right, some projection, But rather, how many people, how many person trips will that accommodate, right? We would design our cities much differently. If we always make the choice about public infrastructure investment as are we privileging the short trip, the walking trip, the bike trip, the transit trip, or the shorter driving trip? And lastly, thinking about public investment, public improvement, as creating long-term value. I love this drawing. Milwaukee, 1909, right? Expanding city, growing city for five minutes. It was bigger than Chicago, maybe. Um, and it's a simple drawing, but you see transit, you see accommodation for cars, beautifully planted street, and it's a street design that you would want to have your address on, right? It's a totally different way of thinking about the design of the public realm. Design it in such a way that the private sector would want to invest, would want to be there, Right? Not just for its commercial value, but the potential of what it creates in terms of making a memorable city. So the capacity of the street, again, is it just designed for one thing or is it for many things? And what it can facilitate in terms of access and exchange. So urban design literacy and promoting a culture of design and improving our design language. Thanks.
2: So I have sort of seven um, – these aren't the seven, but I have sort of seven ideas about um, ways to intervene in the urban landscape, particularly around uh, retrofitting our cities, uh, which I think applies not just to the core of our cities and the inner neighborhoods, but also, in fact, to the suburbs, which will ultimately need to be retrofitted, uh, and including infill and better infrastructure for connections and green stuff and various things. So each of these seven ideas has a bit of a subscript about how, and so I'll I'll go through those. Uh, But I wanted to to say that in in many ways they all um, don't just... they, They advance policy ideas not just by intersecting with urban design because that's necessary in planning construct, but because urban design actually enables good policy ideas to hit the ground, that really, in my view, the utility of urban design and planning is actually to make that bridge between vision and action, and so that's kind of what's behind these rather um, practical, although sometimes tough uh, interventions that were made. But before getting to that, I just, uh, and this may be obvious to you all, but, and, and I wrote these last night, but it sort of resonates with what the discussion was here uh, this morning, It's like, why is urban design even important? And we covered a lot of this today, but I actually believe these five things kind of rise to the top for me. Urban design is important because it really literally shapes our everyday lives. Um, We we live it every day, right? That's that's how all of these ideas and investments and policies actually manifest uh, on the ground. And it can be, as Peter said, good or bad, boring or not. Um, It... Beyond just the aesthetics, and I think one of the other speakers made this point earlier, it actually provides for safety when done right, it provides for sociability, that is to say, human interaction, um, which is beyond just getting us out of cars, but once we 're out of the cars, how does, it, how does the environment actually work for us uh, allow us to behave in different ways, and actually for human health, um, the growing connection between the planning field and the public health field and walkability is, is of course, a big part of that, but not the only piece. Um, Another level up is that I think it. not only are all cities different, but urban design, when done right, can really create a sense of place and, in fact, a community identity. Um, If I say New Orleans, you probably, in your mind, go right to what that looks and feels like, for example. Um, And I think San Diego is still finding out what it's identity is. And that's okay, actually. That means that's great work for everybody in this in this room. And there's been a lot of good work in the, in the past. Thank you, Mike, for such an informative tour yesterday of, of some of that hard work that's done. And Vicki, your presentation was fabulous in terms of things that are great opportunities and things that maybe weren't done quite right and can be uh, re- reimagined. Um, and I believe that it actually urban design because it is visual, it is tangible, it is so visceral, that it expresses our values and our intents, and I think, um, I think Harriet used the word intent as well uh, this morning, um, and it really makes those things real. So they're not just pretty pictures, they actually in the best form actually express what we want our place to be, and for whom, and more and more that means for all not just for the privileged. And um, frankly, I see design as uh, using the, the right side of the brain, as, in addition to us policy walks using the left side of the brain all the time, as a problem-solving uh, means. Because I think it is you have to think in an integrated fashion to pull off a good design. You just have to do that. You have to look at many aspects of cities. You have to look at many tools in the toolbox. You have to use your imagination. I visited the, the design lab on campus yesterday. Wonderful space. And I looked at a, a piece of scribbling on one of the walls there with a marker that said, observe, imagine, make. And that is just a perfect a transition of what we can do as urban designers writ large. And that making is a, a, a result of collaborative problem solving, really. So so here's the first one, which is visualizing density. And this, this is from 15 years ago in Portland. And so don't read it as architectural style. Actually, the one is on the right from Vancouver more recently. But read it as intervening in the built environment already. With more density, uh, and you would say this is probably moderate uh, and gentle density. Um, the point here is the visualization part was really key to making any density happen when I first arrived in Portland as the new planning director was hired in late ninety nine started January two thousand the new the new uh, millennium, and the mayor handed me this Magilla of a project which was to take the rewrite of the city's subdivision ordinance, which had been in the works for 10 years, grinding through community resistance, and try to land it within the first year of my job. Um, So I looked at that. We quickly did a capacity analysis, like how much growth do we expect over 30 years and where can it go? we found out we actually had a lot of capacity already. And we could concentrate some in centers and corridors and some would need to land in neighborhoods. And we kind of knew about how much that was. Finally, people were given some facts and some numbers. Then we reversed what the planning department had done for 10 years without success. And instead of talking about numbers, we just used images. Peter got into this a little bit in his presentation. And we actually did a visual preference survey. So what we did by that is we had a number of zoning districts involved. This was probably a third of the city's landscape, all of the outer areas. And um, we showed side-by-side pictures of equal densities, one pretty good design one really not so good design. we did that over and over again for one unit, two units, three units, four units, eight units, 12 units. Um, And at the end of that year, every single one of this committee of naysayers came forward with me to the city council and said in unison, it's design, not density. So the visualization piece is really the message here I'm trying to convey. The other piece of this is using design competitions. So for this uh, little image up here in the, in the upper left, that red house there, the uh, White House was an, an, sort of old Victorian next to it. That red house is on what we call a skinny lot. These were lots that were subdivided and not built on, you know, 100 years before, <clears throat> and it has, it's about 16 feet wide with some narrow-side yards. So we did a competition to say, could you do sensitive infill for uh, units or even two units on a lot like this? Um, and if you succeed and it's well-received in the public, we'll actually pre-approve these plans. And somebody can just come in, pull a permit, a building permit, right now, no planning review, just build it. So this was the winner of one of the several initial winners of that. and. It looks great, right? And these could be done easily permitted and done all over town. Um, The one below is just to demonstrate the compatibility of an existing single family with a duplex, right? And they look just, well, you've just doubled the density, right? You've just added another family to the neighborhood without any um, real harm. We moved up to the next modest scale there, which is sort of... um, Courtyard housing, where we did another design competition. International. We, people were beating down the doors to compete uh, on this one. Um, and this happens to be uh, um, one that was very similar to the, the winners here, which was really based around a courtyard for kids uh, and was much denser than its adjoining lots, but really in the end very compatible and, and well-received. The final uh, image is from uh, Vancouver regional uh, design competition for the missing middle. And so you saw the diagram that Peter showed on the missing middle, which is meant to be both middle income and middle density, the middle form. And uh, what these folks were instructed to do, there were many, many teams, was to take a real patch of ground, and usually not just a lot, but two blocks or so of area, and say, kind of design the whole area for phased progressive infill and tell us, uh, do a a pro forma so we know it actually works and it's buildable financially, and tell us um, what pieces of the zoning code where whatever city it happened to be in would need to be tweaked to allow this. And it was very, very well received by uh, mayors and uh, builders and communities across the region. So another thing is to use design to actually simplify the process for delivering social goods. So I wanted to use this one, even though it's not the best design on the left. We actually modified it because this was the very first project where we got a lot of money from the province of British Columbia to house homeless. Um, And so what we seized upon for cost reasons was using uh, modular housing on sites that would be located for at least five years, so we called it temporary modular housing, where people had the dignity of having their own room, their own bathroom, uh, and in many cases, a little kitchenette, and then access to common uh, space. This was built very, very um, uh, for very modest cost. Uh, we liked it so. This was done on city land, not really in a residential area. We did 12 more of these throughout the city in every kind of neighborhood across the city. The first one was really tough. The council. Um, And the reason I used simplify the process is the council gave me the authority to approve these just ministerially. No public hearing required, no design review. So what we did in between this first attempt and the next was to really think through a better design. And so that these modular uh, building blocks essentially uh, were different colors, were, were well thought out, were landscaped, had common area. They faced the street. They weren't walled off. And uh, the first one was really tough, uh, and I thought I was going to get skinned alive by the neighborhood. And uh, we approved it. It was actually the high school kids that came out and shamed their parents after the public hearing and said, those are people too. And guess what? They already live in our neighborhood. And after that, the the next 11 cruised through. And actually some high-income, very stable neighborhoods, right? And so um, that was a lot that had to do with design. The policy intent, of course, was to, to meet this social need with provincial money, but the sensitivity around good design, including the site design, was really important. The one on the right, of course, is a accessory dwelling unit in the back, which were in Vancouver called the laneway cottages. And these were a very slow uptake in the first few years. They've really taken off. And this is a traditional design. Many of them are modern. Uh, they work to provide a gap for affordability for renters. The next scale up, which I don't really have a picture of, is something I mentioned this morning's session, which is going to six stories for rental only, ownership at four stories. But if you go to all rental, which we can do in Canada, you can't really zone by tenure in the States, uh, you could do that as of right on the, on the corridors, if you, did, if you met the design standards that we wrote right into the code. So there's no discretionary uh, review, and that's another way to deliver social, social needs through uh, thoughtful design. Um, density bonuses, someone asked about that this morning. Yes, we do them. Here's one. There are lots of them all over uh, uh, Vancouver. We've used this mechanism a lot where you can go higher, maybe up to 30% higher um, than the normal zoning would allow if you provide X amount of affordable uh, housing units is generally what the bonus is for, and that means everything from more height to more floor area and reduction in parking. Those are the principle three. There's some others that sometimes get involved. But again, the design here is important. It needs to be accepted by the community. Even if it's providing a social good like affordable housing, it still needs to be well designed. So here, um, a number of people have talked about paying a lot of attention to that ground floor. In fact, that's what people live and experience. They, if you ask them how many stories they couldn't tell you, and if you lopped five off the top, they probably wouldn't know the difference. Right? It's really that first one, two, three floors that are that are the key, and some elegance in the in the form. Uh, here's another one. Good design helps us go green. This is an entirely uh, passive house, and people know what that is. Passive house. It is the highest energy efficient. Construction uh, known. And it was pioneered in Germany. It's making its way across to Canada, and will soon be coming to the States. And um, it's, it's, in addition to being very energy efficient, which saves on the, this is all rental, it saves on the renter's utility bills, right? So there's a slight premium on the construction cost, but that's easily made up for in the, on the monthly energy bill side, is it's really quiet. It is so quiet. So you can build these on main streets, and they they have a ventilation system that works really well. So the air is fresh. Between that fresh air and the noise reduction, the health benefits are amazing. So in addition to helping save the planet from greenhouse gases, uh, it does that. Bill asked me to uh, stick this in, this concept because I mentioned this morning that um, here's the downtown peninsula in Vancouver. The I'm getting the the hook here pretty quick. Uh, someone asked about the um, the way we fund uh, a lot of the community benefits. This is so. There's a sampling of towers, and a number of these have gone through this process to do a negotiated agreement, essentially a property-specific rezoning. And what happens in that process is we negotiate for we look at the pro forma of the building, and we say, you know, you, you're you've got about a 50 million-dollar surplus or $100 million dollar surplus, you need to allocate some of that to community benefits like parks, not so much schools, parks, affordable housing, um, libraries, community centers, and so forth. Well, here's the city's annual <laughs> uh, budget or capital, short-term capital plan. Look how much of it is development contributions in Vancouver compared to property tax and other tax revenues. This is an astounding proportion and one of the reasons Bill wanted me to, to talk about it. Um, and so these, this red circle is basically called CACs, which are community um, amenity uh, contributions, and those are negotiated. Smaller projects are subject to DCLs or development cost levies, which do the same things, it's just a lesser amount. And we actually had formulas for those, so it's much easier to get through the process without a protracted negotiation. Much of that value is actually built into the project, so it's credited. If you build X number of affordable units, you're credited that money. But design, again, is really important because um, these big-scale projects wouldn't happen without good design, and so, therefore, some community acceptance. Getting money, which, as I said before, is often a delayed implementation on the benefit side, um, the public tolerance for collecting that money and building really ugly, massive buildings would have run out a long time ago. In San Francisco, um, was we did some similar work, and again, a formulaic basis, but this is where in, um, in the south of Market area, this is central Soma. Um, here's the build out that we perceived. This was a very low rise um, light industrial district and was meant slated to be converted to higher uh, use, uh, higher density um, and multiple uses. So we calculated the, the tolerable heights and densities and the value, that if, should we adopt that plan, which we did. And thank you, John, for <laughs> carrying that through after I left. But the, the point here was that that development owed some money the community to pay for community services and infrastructure and so forth so of course there are requirements about the building themselves and so forth and so on but in addition to that um, here's what we raised or would raise at that build out which wasn't every single parcel going to its full build out potential um, it's really about two billion dollars over, over time and it's kind of probably you know, once the market kind of corrects and so forth it'll turn around and it'll, it'll start kicking in so you can see the, the millions of square feet that are developed and then the, the total there, just real quickly. Um, another utility in my view of thoughtful urban design is not about buildings at all. It's about the spaces between the buildings. And so here's some interesting images. This upper one is the sort of reimagining of an existing alleyway in Vancouver. And we did a lot of this work in San Francisco too. And then as John will remember, this was the Market Street Prototyping Festival. So I wish when, when um, you were showing your picture, Peter, of that Milwaukee Boulevard from 1909, we'd, we would love to have Market Street look like that. It just ain't going to happen. But it can be a lot better than it has been. And so what um, our urban designer working on this, Neil, um, or show we did, was to work with, uh, with uh, uh, Jan Gale's office, who had a branch in San Francisco, so really just turn people's imaginations loose and do art installations and just active stuff and say, okay, before we spend a bunch of money, what do we, how do we actually want to use this space? Okay. And then uh, this was a lot of the, the public life uh, survey kind of thing is like, how do people actually use it? The far image is of Portland, the Pearl District, where we deliberately did a plan with parks, narrow streets, streetcar, uh, and housing um, together that works in that same way. I'm almost there. And, uh, and the same thing that we do with, you know, with, with the previous slide, you we, we can translate that over to culture as well. Some of it's kind of formalized reuse of downtown theaters, old movie theaters for live stage, and then just um, keeping Chinatown in Vancouver intact. And critically, that retail that's so important, the ethnic uh, retail there. And we can use urban design for making places for nature. And so here's a park uh, in Vancouver that replicates some natural forms. Here's an actual functioning piece of the landscape in Portland uh, where this is inside the city. It's, a, it's a, a kind of a wetland. And the notion is we actually, the city bought a whole bunch of houses in there and took them out. Harriet, we were talking about that the other day, uh, and then actually corrected the stream flows. and. Planted uh, trees back in, and this is a not only a neighborhood asset, but it's functioning ecology in, right in the city. And then I think another key piece for uh, urban design is actually not just installing transportation devices, but actually making them usable and accessible. Like you know, here's the street, the Portland streetcar. Even the loft there that was built after the commitment was made to streetcars says "Go by streetcar," which is a it's sort of an echo of the downtown uh, train station that says go by train from the uh, early uh, 20th century. Um, but you step right on and off. This is essentially a moving sidewalk. You know? It stops almost every block, easy to step on and off of. You don't have to cross a railroad track. You don't have to get out and fight traffic to get on and off it. And we figured out in the central city, for example, for the streetcar, which I think is the most efficient circulator in that dense context as opposed to a larger light rail system that serves the rest of the region. Where do you really want to go? What are the critical routes? And how do you make it easy for people to use and get an on? And for, for the first 10 years of its life, it was free as well. The, the piece on the right is just the contrast to something we saw on our tour yesterday, which was uh, a bike path that looked like it was scary. <laughs> it was really scary, <laughs> about what you would do riding down a six-lane boulevard uh, that felt like a freeway <laughs> with a little tiny narrow bike path and then another lane of travel for vehicles on the other side of it. And it's like, really? I'm, I better not look the other way here or you know, get a bug in my eye or something like that because I could be toast. Um, then I think the last two slides here are really about um, going a step bigger and conceiving of whole neighborhood design. And so... Um, here, Urban Design helped me as the new planning director in Portland in 2000 make a big leap. This land here was essentially fallow industrial land, old building shipyards and rebuilding ours. It's called the South Waterfront now. Nothing really on it to speak of except dirty earth. Next to the river, and when I came to town, the redevelopment agency had taken to council without really planning involvement a gated, low-rise community here, a couple of two-story office buildings that were right out of a suburban office park, surrounded by surface parking, and then a, a big-box REI store here and with a bunch of parking around it. And that was like, yeah, okay. And the landowners down there all signed on and went to council. And the council accepted it, meaning they just received the report. They didn't endorse it. And the next day, the mayor told me, this really sucks, you gotta do something about this. So I had to go down and beat all the heads of all these folks down here, and uh, it took me a couple years to repair my relationship with the redevelopment agency, as well as the homeowners, uh, or the landowners. But when I looked up the hill, and it's just off of this, up on the top of the hill is the primary, and a very good um, medical institution in the state. It's the Oregon Health Sciences University. Uh, associated originally with the University of Oregon. It was located on the top of a hill because somebody in the railroad uh, bureaucracy back in Washington uh, in the 1800s said, that would be a great place for a train station. Look, it's just south of downtown. Lower. Well, they didn't see, they didn't have a topographic map, so it's on the top of a hill. You could not get a railroad there if you tried. So, But they then gave the land to the university who built a, a working hospital up there. The point is they were uh, getting very um, aggressive in medical uh, research, including cancer research and early cancer detection, and actually an investigator there developed the very first known cure of any kind of cancer there. So I said, okay, we've got to tap that for the city's economy. So this is really an economic play, but the design piece was, was critical because you can see the downtown of Portland in the, in the background <clears throat> with Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams. There in a little peak of Mount Rainier uh, further back. And there was a little hue and cry because are we competing with downtown? No, actually, we're just using the land really efficient. This either ought to be a big park or we really ought to go big. So we went big and through a, thinking through not just the designs, it's about a 50-50 mix, intermix of uh, workspace and of um, including you know, research space and medical practice space and housing and some smattering of retail. We stepped away from the river. Essentially, we got this whole bank of river for people and for fish for free because we allowed heights to go higher for people to set back. And we also thought, well, let's just extend the streetcar down there. So we extended the streetcar. We have ultimately built a brand new bridge, which is depicted there, which has um, Bikes, peds, buses, light rail, and streetcar, no cars, no trucks. And the notion was, let's bring those devices in to hook in to this new thing, which is the connector between the hill and the campus down below, which basically doubled the size of this campus, and put it on the map between that guy's research and this physical development, put it on the map for NIH funding to be a real player in the bioscience Marketplace and sort of put Portland on the map in that way. This would not have been possible had it not been thinking through things from an urban design point of view. How's this actually, how's this big idea really going to work with all the multiple things from endangered fish species in the river to cries for public access to limited um, vehicular access to the district, limited space for parking, um, and uh, some way to get up the hill? So this thing carries you back and forth between the top of the hill and the bottom in three to four minutes. Every other way we tried, even by prioritizing signals, and so it was about 25 minutes. What that did was prevent them, this institution, from recruiting the best principal investigators who wanted to teach, do research, and do clinical work all in the same day. They can do that by going back and forth up and down the hill in three minutes and not spending half an hour and then looking for parking. So um, I think this is the very last one, and um, a concept that I ginned up in the early 2000s in Portland, which is how do we sort of popularize the idea of compact, modest-scale urban development that's really mixed-use, really walkable, um, and isn't just beating people over the heads with FAR numbers or density numbers or anything else. It's like, how do you want your neighborhood to behave? And the more conversations I had with people in Portland about that in neighborhoods is the walkability. And so how do you translate walkability? And we said, well, what could you walk to in 20 minutes or walk to in 10 and walk back to your house in 10? Um, and by the way, a 20 minutes is about a one-mile walk, a pretty good uh, walk. You can you can get to a regional facility, a big park, only in a 20-minute walk. You can get to stuff that's your daily and weekly needs in probably 10 minutes or so. And so it became this kind of cohesive way of thinking. Not that there are hard boundaries around this. You can kind of slide that 20-minute over the whole landscape and serve just about. So we actually used this as the basis for the new general plan in Portland and about... Somewhere in the ninety percentile of the city fits this uh, with the new new zoning and new adaptation to this, so you can have a grocery store, you can have all kinds of stuff it's very sociable, and I think it actually even has these two pieces at the end, which i 'll close with, which is it actually feels like home. neighborhood is home for most people outside the house that is the unit of of a communal kind of contact. And so, to me, it not only has some civic function in terms of a building community, but it actually possesses the potential for better governance and engagement in the power of decision-making that the city has. So I'll close with that. Thank you for letting me go on and on. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Gil Kelly.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV,